When life throws you a curveball, how are you going to handle adversity? Welcome to the Fearless Mindset Podcast, where you're about to go on a journey as I interview security, business, and entertainment leaders on what it takes to stay fearless. I'm your host, Mark Ludlow, and enjoy today's episode. Well, hey, Scott, thanks for coming on the Fearless Mindset Broadcast show, and uh, thanks for your time. I know you're a busy man running... um, Torchstone is vice president in New York, and uh, you're a busy man with many uh, fires to put out, I know, over there. So thanks for joining me. Well, thanks for having me, Mark. I'm, I'm always uh, glad to have the opportunity to talk to people about protection and protective intelligence. So uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to be here and to talk with you about these topics. Awesome. You know, the, the, big, the big thing, everybody's, you know, everybody's freaked out about November 3rd. Everybody's uh, in the fear moment in their mind. They're, everybody's paralyzed by fear as Americans because the number third, everybody's going to vote. And uh, I just want to give people a sense of um, peace, a sense of it's going to be okay. And what is your, and your expert opinion? I know you've been a commentator on many contributor on many TV networks on terrorism and all that type of thing. You're sought after for your knowledge uh, being working the state department. What is, uh, what is your take on all this going on? Well, I, I think my, my bottom uh, take or my bottom line is that it's, you know, we should be thinking about it. We should be preparing. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we should be panicking at this point. Um, I believe that we will see some election related violence uh, either around the time of the election or before or between the election and the inauguration or around the inauguration. We're, we're going to see these acts of violence, but I believe that they're going to continue to be isolated uh, in nature. Uh, So it's going to be sporadic. It's not going to see any sort of escalation. And really, over the last several months, that's what we've seen happening. Uh, We've seen shootings at demonstrations, both by, uh, you know, right wing and left wing type individuals. Uh, But they have not spun out of control. They have not escalated. Uh, And I believe that that's the pattern that's going to hold as we go forward. Now, is the case studies are going to be, do you think they're going to be more like lone wolf type of scenarios and situations, people acting as actors on their own behalfs? Well, I, I think a little bit of all of the above. I mean, certainly there are, are movements um, that, that are, you know, working uh, to, to kind of promote violence, uh, movements like Antifa, uh, movements like Boogaloo. Um, but really, in, in many ways, they're more akin to what we see in, in the jihadist movement on, on the other side. Um, you know, they basically provide the, the motivation, the inspiration and try to work people towards becoming active, but it's not necessarily a hierarchical organization uh, that is out there running things. Um, But at the same time, we we have seen some of these militia groups running around and and they are something to be concerned about. Um, But at the same time, the larger they get, and then this was really illustrated by that that recent case in in Michigan, the larger they get, the more they start, uh, you know, incorporating outsiders, really the, the more uh, vulnerable they are to interdiction and detection. Uh, you know, in that Michigan case, they had at least two confidential informants. Uh, actually, from reading the complaint, it looks like there were more, plus two undercover FBI agents have been inserted into that plot. So they had it really, I mean, very, very well wired. So when, when we see that kind of organization going after something bigger and trying to network, they become more, much more vulnerable. And that's really what we've seen, uh, you know, the pattern. If you look over the last 10 years, uh, you know, specifically on, on the right wing side, 
um, almost all the attacks that have been conducted have been things like, you know, the Sikh shooting in Wisconsin, uh, the, the, the synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh. Um, and even on the left wing, we had the congressional shooting at the baseball team in Virginia. So it's really been these lone actors that, that have been the ones that have conducted the deadly attacks. And when we've seen these groups trying to organize groups like the base uh, that, that was taken down in, in, in Maryland and, and Georgia, uh, that, that's when, you know, uh, basically the, the law enforcement can focus on them. I, I think of the FBI and, and its partners, you know, they're kind of like a shark. And, and once a target becomes identified for them, they have very, very finely attuned uh, sen you know, sensory apparatus. You know, they're highly evolved. And once they identify that target, man, they sink their teeth into it and kill it. And, and that's what we've seen happen with Adam Waffen. That's what we saw happen with the base. That's what we saw happen to this, this militia group in, in Michigan. The problem they have is when they run into a shoal of bait fish, okay? And, and, and you, know, you think of that in the ocean with all those bait fish and the shark just can't lock onto one because there's too many and, and all that movement just kind of overloads the sensory uh, capability of the shark. And that's what we see happening really with these lone wolf attackers. Uh, they just fade into that fabric and, and you know, they just don't stick out until the point where they stick out, um, it, it's really hard for them to, to be picked up on. Um, and, and so that's why we've seen that pattern of these lone attackers being successful. And really we've seen the same thing in, in the jihadist realm since, uh, you know, since 9-11. That, that's been the pattern, it's been these lone attackers and not these, you know, well-organized groups of 19 guys coming here and attacking us. So it's almost like they're copying what the jihad has been doing in Hezbollah by duplicating the cell, the business model of attacks by duplicating exactly what they're doing, kind of like what the cartel's been doing, operating by cells. Well, actually, it's the opposite. Um, the, the white supremacists adopted the, the leaderless resistance model um, back in the 80s, following the Fort Smith, Arkansas uh, sedition uh, trial. Uh, and at that time, they found out that the entire white supremacist movement had been just infiltrated heavily by law enforcement. And so they decided at that point, that's where you saw a shift. Okay, prior to that, um, you had like, for example, looking at the National Alliance of, and William Pierce, he, he uh, put out a famous book in the 70s and uh, 78 called uh, The Turner Diaries. And, and I mean, it was not only a work of fiction, it was meant to be a blueprint on how to set up a, a terrorist group. And certainly we saw the group, the order, then put that into motion in 1983 when, when they started. And they actually called themselves the order, which was a secret group out of the Turner Diaries. So there was a linkage there. Um, but after Fort Smith, uh, the next year in 1989, we saw uh, William Pierce actually uh, write a book called Hunter. That was about a, a lone wolf assailant who was running around shooting, uh, you know, mixed race couples and politicians and entertainers. Um, and actually, he, he dedicated that book to a guy by the name of uh, 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 Joseph Paul Franklin, who, who was a, 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 you know, kind of a, a, a lot of people don't know about Franklin, by the way, it's, it's kind of interesting. He kind of flew under the radar, but he went, was on this multi-year uh, shooting spree throughout the United States uh, where he was, uh, I, you know, they know of at least 20 murders that, that, that were pinned on him, including some high profile people like Vernon Jordan, uh, who was a, a civil rights leader. He, he didn't kill Jordan, but severely wounded him. He also wounded uh, Larry Flint, the publisher of Hustler, and, and, right. and actually paralyzed Flint for life in, in that attack. So uh, Franklin was a very successful lone wolf operator, and nobody knew he was there, uh, really, until he was caught. And then they started putting the pieces together and, and linking ballistics evidence to the guns he had and stuff to these attacks. 
Um, so, so uh, you know, we, we kind of have seen that paradigm shift. And, and there again, if you look back at the fatal attacks, uh, you know, in the United States over the last decade, it's been almost exclusively these, these lone wolf attackers. So going into the elections, we're going to be looking at far left, far right, and just a kind of an explosion of leveraging their emotion, because everything is based on an emotion right now. And then you have, you know, may have some issues with the far right, maybe some veterans. I'm, I'm not, I'm not uh, picking on veterans. I love my veterans, but maybe they have some PTSD issues and maybe they want uh, a name to fame or something like that. And is that something we need to be concerned about? Those guys that have, you know, suicidal tendencies, are they, are they prone to this, you know, type of emotion to be attached to that? Unfortunately, I think we have definitely seen, and even active duty people, look at the Boogaloo shooting we had in Oakland at the federal courthouse there. You know, that was an active duty, you know, air policeman that was involved, or two of them in that case. Uh, we saw a number of veterans that were rolled up in Las Vegas that were affiliated with the, the, the Boogaloo movement. So I, I think that there is some uh, attraction there to people, especially, um, you know, quite frankly, a lot of, of veterans are very patriotic. Um, and, and they're kind of susceptible, I think, to, to propaganda, uh, especially propaganda that, that plays upon patriotism, that plays upon Second Amendment rights. I mean, most of us love guns. Uh, Absolutely. You know, right. I, I'm, I'm a barrel sucker. Uh, you know, I, nobody's, <laughs> nobody's coming to take away my guns. Uh, right. But, but I can understand, you know, why people become susceptible to that fear. Um, of course, that's where you make money on your ARs. Every time that there's a, you know, one of these uh, uh, campaigns that, that, you know, they're going to come take away our guns, you, you know, you sell the AR and then wait for the price to go back by the next one. Um, but, but really, I, you know, th there is an issue, but we've also seen, uh, quite frankly, uh, you know, veterans involved on, on, on the left wing side too, and, and probably for much the same reason. Um, so, you know, it's not, you know, they're not all on the right wing, uh, but, but, you know, veterans are a problem. And of course, because by and large, you know, we're more trained. Um, on the good side, though, again, uh, I, I think it's important to, to realize that, that most veterans, uh, while they have, you know, uh, military training, they don't necessarily have uh, terrorist tradecraft or the skills required to be a successful terrorist. And, and, and those two things are, are quite different, um, you know, the things that you need to be a, a, a good terrorist operative, the ability to operate, you know, in, in a hostile environment, uh, avoid law enforcement scrutiny, conduct good surveillance, uh, you know, perhaps using counterfeit docs, uh, fundraising, uh, you know, clandestinely, obtaining weapons clandestinely. Those are really more like intelligence type skills, um, you know, than they are, uh, you know, military skills. So, so there's a reason, you know, in the past where we saw these Marxist terrorist groups, uh, for example, being trained by the KGB and the Stasi, uh, because they had those, those tradecraft elements to, to really give them those skills to conduct uh, the attacks. And of course, you know, uh, bomb making skills uh, and, and IEDs. I mean, it's one thing, even if you're a, a demo guy in the military, if you got demo blocks and, 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 you know, blasting caps and dead cord, it's a lot easier to make a bomb. Uh, than it is if you have to go out and fabricate everything yourself, in, including your explosives. Um, so it really is a, a, a more difficult, uh, uh, you know, or a different uh, type of, of uh, skill set. And so even these, these Michigan guys that we saw, you know, there was at least one veteran uh, involved in that group, uh, but he really didn't have the chops uh, to, to be able to help them practice very good operational security and, and to do really, you know, good high level surveillance. Uh, if those guys hadn't been infiltrated 
like they were, their surveillance uh, really would have given them away, um, uh -huh. which is there again, it's a good thing. And you know, from our, our perspective, from, from the practitioner and the security practitioner uh, perspective, you know, looking for that, that hostile surveillance is, is so key and so critical um, because they have to do it. And it doesn't matter what ideology they are, who they are, what skill set they are, they have to conduct that surveillance. And quite frankly, most bad guys are crappy at it. Um, you know, we've even seen whether the jihadis, whether it's, you know, the Hezbollah guys, uh, whether it is, uh, you know, the anarchists or whether it's, you know, the neo-Nazis, they generally suck at surveillance. So if we're looking for hostile surveillance and we're paying attention to that, that really can indicate to us that there is something going on and can really help us proactively mitigate that threat before it can take shape. Wow. My I'm sorry, I got down, I got down a rabbit hole there. <laughs> like, whoa, good stuff there, Scott. Wow, I'm just like taking it all in like a sponge. So they were, how close were they from taking out that governor? Were they pretty close? I mean, were they days away to doing something bad? Uh, well, in their minds, they were moving that direction. Um, okay. You know, they, they, they were trying to obtain a large quantity of explosives so they could drop a bridge. They thought that they needed to drop a bridge to uh, prevent law enforcement from responding to the residents. Um, and of course, the guy that they were trying to buy the explosives from was an FBI undercover agent. Oh, uh, he was also their demo man. They needed to recruit a demo man. Uh, and, and guess what? Uh, we got this guy here. He's you know <laughs> FBI agent. Uh, and, and we've seen wow. that a lot, actually, in, sure. in sting operations. Uh, you know, not, not just of, of the right wing, but, but uh, you know, we, we had the anarchist cell in uh, Cleveland that was trying to drop some bridges and they reached out and, and got hooked up with the FBI. Um, and, and we've seen the same thing really with the jihadis uh, quite frequently. You know, they're trying to do things that are beyond their capabilities. So they're reaching out for weapon systems and, and for tradecraft they don't have like bomb making. And, and that's where they get sucked into the, uh, the sting operations. Well, here's a question that just came to my mind, Scott, is where are they redoing these recruiting elements? Are they doing it like on a, the dark web platform, like private group Facebook, or are they underground? Or how, how do they meet each other? Where does that all take place? Uh, all of the above. I mean, some of it's happening in real life at some of these demonstrations. So you're having people at, say, Second Amendment, um, you know, uh, type demonstrations or other, you know, anti-COVID lockdown uh, demonstrations. Uh, you know, they feel they, they meet these people that they feel have, you know, similar uh, grievances, grievance narratives, uh, whether it is, you know, the Second Amendment thing, whether it is uh, COVID, uh, whether it's racial or ethnic, whatever that grievance is. Um, and, and they kind of meet these like minded people there. But then obviously, you know, social media has been huge. Um, and, and, you know, before, you know, the modern advent of, of this social media, it was much more difficult uh, you know, for these groups to organize, uh, especially across distances. Um, but, uh, you know, the, some of the first adopters of the internet uh, were basically these terrorists. Um, you know, very, very early on, we had people like uh, Lewis Beam, uh, a Klan leader in Texas. We had guys like uh, uh, Black from Stormfront. Um, you know, they, they had these message boards and IRC chat boards, and they were very early adopters. We saw the same thing kind of on the jihadi side, too. I mean, very early on, we had, you know, Azam.com and, and these other jihad sites where they would put up kind of recruiting materials and stuff. So really, uh, you know, the, 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 the terrorists have, have been very early adopters, whether it was putting up recruiting material, how-to material, 
um, you know, bond manuals and stuff have, have been up forever. Um, so it really has been a, a very important boon for them. Uh, you know, th they've been struggling uh, most recently because of deep platforming. Um, you know, so, I mean, groups like the Islamic State or, you know, these other groups, Twitter was huge for them because it's so big and everybody has it. So it was a great way for them to reach out. The same thing with like Facebook. Um, you know, once they lost those big platforms and have been deplatformed, uh, you know, even most recently groups like Boogaloo or QAnon, um, they've had to go to, you know, other platforms. So, so now they're using things like Discord, uh, Signal, Telegram, uh, you know, some of these other uh, social media, but they just don't have the reach of, uh, especially on the recruiting side that things like Facebook and, and Twitter did. I know I heard uh, through the media outlet that Antifa was in BLM were having huge success in recruiting because they're on the, the Twitter platform. And then I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I heard the DOJ got involved or something and then the, the Twitter shut it down or something. And that's when they lost their pull and getting that momentum going across the country. That's kind of well, what I heard. Well, certainly, I, I, I honestly don't know the specifics on that, but I mean, they have had a very large uh, platform. And I know I've seen, I still see BLM all over Instagram. Um, so I'd be surprised if, if they were shut down there. Okay. Um, and, and, but, but still, uh, you know, all these groups use social media, uh, you know, not only uh, to recruit, but, but even to communicate. Uh, you know, we see these groups using social media during demonstrations uh, to coordinate their activities. And, and the way that, uh, you know, they, they use these protests has been interesting to watch, too. So you have groups such as the Anarchist Black Bloc uh, that kind of embed themselves with, within these protests. And then they use them really as camouflage um, or, you know, kind of almost going back to insurgent theory. They use that as their, their human terrain that they can kind of move in and throughout and it serves as cover for them. So they can kind of go through the crowd, attack the cops, kind of withdraw back into the crowd and, and be kind of mobile. And then the idea is what they're trying to do is, is provoke the cops to overreact and specifically then to get the cops to overreact against uh, the non-black bloc protesters. So then you hear all this stuff about police brutality. Um, you know, after these guys have been doing all these shenanigans against the police, whether, you know, throwing rocks or frozen water bottles or fireworks, you know, shining lasers at them, et cetera. But then they'll kind of pull back in. And, and then you've got, you know, photos of the cops wailing on some uh, grandma, uh, which is, you know, exactly what they're, they're trying to do. They're trying to put, uh, you know, they call it a dilemma action. Um, and, and that goes way back in kind of protester uh, uh, theory. Uh, what they're trying to do is place law enforcement and, and security, on, honestly, if, if you're you know, in private security caught with, with demonstrators at, at your site. Um, what they're trying to do is, is put you in a place where if you don't take action, they are seen as winning. But if you do take action and respond to what they do, they also win. And, and that's what they're trying. So, you know, you really have to understand what they're trying to do. And then you need to respond to them in a measured fashion so that you don't over respond and kind of take that bait that they're giving you and, and trying to suck you into. Uh, but unfortunately, we've really seen, uh, you know, the authorities take that bait on, on you know, way too many occasions. I mean, what, what, what is your thinking on what is the, I guess, the biggest threat the U.S. faces right now? as far as another attack. You know, we had 9-11, mm. 
we don't want to have that again. But what do you see in your, you know, what do you hear on the ground out there as the next foreseeable threat on U.S. soil? Well, it, it depends how we how we define biggest. Um, I mean, if if we're talking the most severe, most dire versus most common, uh, because they're, they're really I, I see them as as two different things. Uh, you know, when we look at at the most dire, the most severe threat, those are coming from these organized groups that have terrorist tradecraft. So that's going to be these organizations like a Hezbollah. Um, that's going to be, you know, the Islamic State, Al Qaeda, uh, or, or quite frankly, you know, some of these domestic groups, if they're able to um, get their act together um, and, you know, practice good, good tradecraft and good OPSEC. Uh, you know, really, that's what we saw with the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, was a small cell, um, you know, that kind of came together was able to practice good OPSEC and pull off a horrendous attack. Um, so that's the most dire. I mean, the good, the good part about that, I guess, or the mitigating part about that, that dire threat, is that's really where a lot of the government uh, resources are best uh, directed at. And they've been very effective in taking down those kinds of organizations. Um, and so we, we've really been able to see whether it's the directed or you know, the, the terrorists that have been sent uh, by these organizations, they, they've done a pretty good job of taking those guys down before they've been able to conduct, uh, you know, spectacular attacks, you know, in, in recent years. Uh, that threat remains, and that's the most dire threat and, and what, what really concerns me. Uh, but, but the most common threat and, and what I really believe we're going to continue to see is going to be that persistent, deadly, low-level attacks uh, using simple means, uh, firearms, uh, vehicular assaults, you know, running over people with trucks and, and cars, uh, knives, uh, you know, those are the attacks that, and, 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 you know, that's what we've seen over again, the, the last decade, uh, you know, pressure cooker bombs, uh, you know, armed assaults, whether it's the Pulse nightclub, you know, by a jihadi or, or whether it's against the synagogue in Pittsburgh, it's those kind of simple attacks uh, that can be pretty effective, uh, unfortunately. I mean, you know, as you know, it, it's, it's, it's shockingly easy to kill people if you are willing to do so and willing to give up your life in the process. And, uh, you know, we, we see these people going in, uh, you know, to these mass shootings uh, and, and they can just inflict carnage against these soft targets. And, and unfortunately, due to the nature of our society, there's just so many soft targets out there and we can't protect everything all the time. It's just impossible. Um, so, you know, th those who are, are bent towards that kind of attack are always going to find some sort of, of soft target. And even as you try to harden things, you know, what you're really doing is kind of pushing out the kill zone. You know, think about the airports. Okay, so we've, we've got, you know, the airports, but then the screening areas outside the security areas then become the kill zone. Um, so, it, you know, it just kind of shifts the, the, the kill zone and, and the, the pool of targets. It doesn't really, you know, totally take away the, the risk. Um, and, and so because of that, that's why we need to really remain vigilant and really try to be proactive and look for those signs of the attack cycle as it's progressing. Wow. <clears throat> now I'm thinking when you're talking about all that, I was thinking churches, you know, places of worship probably will remain a big, huge target. And it seems like it's increased lately in this last year, 2019, like every other week, one, some churches getting hit with something. Now is that, is that politically driven? Is there an ideology behind that? Or is that more lone wolf type of tactic? No, no, it's, it's all of the above. Uh, but I mean, it, it's basically these lone attackers who are motivated by, I mean, uh, we, we saw the one in, in Texas was actually a domestic dispute. 
where, where the estranged husband goes into the church and just starts mowing people down in, into the ex-wife's church. So, uh, you know, there can be a, a variety of, of reasons for that. And whether that's, you know, white supremacy, um, whether that's, uh, you know, anti-Semitic uh, attacks against synagogues, attacks against mosques, attacks against the Sikhs in Wisconsin, you know, houses of worship really are unfortunately under fire. Um, and, and because of that, you know, I think it's very important for uh, the leadership in those institutions, uh, you know, to really take security seriously um, and, and to, to work to put good security in place to, to try to mitigate and, and, and more importantly, prevent those types of attacks from happening. Uh, you know, the good thing there again is that these attacks don't happen out of a vacuum. Okay, they just don't appear. They're, they're the result of a, a process and the result of a process that can be detected if you are looking for it. And so that's why we really need to educate and, and not just church security teams or synagogue security teams, but really congregations. Because the, you know, the guys on the security team or ladies on the security team only have so many eyeballs, right? Whereas you know, if you get the whole congregation involved, you know, it's the same thing with workplace violence and, and mitigating workplace violence. It, it really has to be everyone in the company involved. Uh, because they just have so many more eyes and, and they have visibility into so many more things. Um, and they need to report, uh, especially if they have uh, inside information about the pathway to violence that somebody they know is following, you know, whether it's a, a crazy ex-boyfriend or whether it's a coworker that, that, you know, is harboring those grievances is starting to exhibit violent ideation uh, and is kind of progressing along that, uh, that, that pathway to violence. They need to report that stuff uh, so that it can be uh, taken care of and those people can be monitored before they can conduct an attack. You know, I, I've been to many different churches in California, and I know they seem like they're, they're adding surveillance camera systems into their technology of their programs. And I think, do you think uh, surveillance is a big in, a good investment at this point in time as we close in on the elections for houses of worship? Is that well, probably I, a good factor? I, I think it depends on how it's, it's used. Okay. Um, uh, because quite frankly, in, in many cases, uh, you know, especially in the corporate world, but also, you know, in, in, in entertainment venues or religious venues, if you don't use the cameras properly and if your staff isn't properly trained, basically all it is good for is an act after action review. Uh, it helps you figure out how the crime was committed. Um, and, and you really need to have the proper training and the proper equipment and the, the proper deployment to use it proactively. So there again, you need to be looking for the surveillance. And, and, and there are ways you can do that. You know, um, so if, if you've got your facility, um, you can figure out you know, where are the good places for a surveillance to set up? Where am I gonna set up if I'm going to attack this church? Where am I gonna watch it? And then those are the places you watch with your cameras or with your people. So you're looking for the, that activity in those expected places. And, and you know, the good thing about the cameras today is that they can alert you when there is activity in places you designate. Um, so, you know, if, if you see activity in these critical areas uh, where maybe somebody's staging an attack or somebody's conducting surveillance, then you can follow up and investigate and try to mitigate it before it, it can be launched. Uh, so the answer, I guess, the long answer is yes, cameras can be very helpful if they're right. used properly and if your people have the proper training. But, but that, yeah. you know, that's true for the, the entire industry, whether we're talking entertainment venues, corporations, whatever. Well, yeah. <clears throat> Thank you. Thanks for covering that. I think the biggest threat right now we're looking at is the COVID virus as far as the biggest uh, enemy 
our country, the world has faced. What, what are your thoughts on, you know, the therapies, the vaccines? Do you think, um, I know everybody is talking about, well, as soon as we get vaccines and therapies and antibodies, we'll get that. And then the whole executive protection industry is going to explode and grow. What are your thoughts about all that? And where do you see it all going? No, I, I think that eventually, uh, you know, b- between uh, just the immunity that's being developed by people catching it and having the antibodies, uh, and, and there's been some studies lately that I've seen that indicate that there's more people that have had it uh, than we've really previously realized. Uh, they're saying that some, some parts of New York City, up to 50% of the people have already had it. Um, wow. And, and that, that's going to be helpful going forward. But, but obviously, the better we can treat it, the, the more quickly we get that vaccine in place, the more we can start you know, going back more towards normal. Uh, but, but quite frankly, I don't think we're ever going to be back to what we thought was normal before this completely. Um, I, I just think that it's, you know, going to be something that we're going to have to live with for a while. Um, you know, this disease is going to still be around it and other ones are going to come up too. Um, so it's just kind of a, a, you know, sadly, uh, a new normal for, for many of us. And uh, it poses a lot of challenges, uh, you know, for security. Uh, you know, we have to rethink the way we're doing things now because a lot of our staff is off site. Um, you know, corporate security, the face of it's changed. Um, you know, think about even the executive protection, uh, you know, paradigm has totally changed for us. Um, so we really need to, to be thoughtful and creative in, in our approaches, um, you know, to this, this pandemic. Uh, and, and then, of course, also just the, the pressures that it's creating on people uh, socially, economically, um, you know, that's a big stressor. And I think that that's also one of the things that's leading to kind of this emotionalism you were talking about earlier. Um, you know, people are, are, are just kind of fed up and angry uh, in general. And, and that, you know, that's not helping uh, b- being in an election year at the same time and all the, the propaganda and misinformation and disinformation that's out there is just really stirring things up. Uh, so, you know, as security practitioners, we just need to be really aware of these currents um, and, and be aware of how they can influence people uh, around us uh, and whether that's external threat actors or potential internal threat actors and, and then be prepared to mitigate any threats that they can pose to our protectees. Good advice. Yeah, it's like the shift is definitely changing in the industry. I mean, the way we used to do business has changed, like you said, and everybody's working remotely. What, what is your biggest uh, request from your clients at Torstone? What, what are you guys hearing from your clients as far as wh- how are they shifting um, your service provider as far as what are you guys having to change as far as what do you offer and all that? Uh, it, honestly, it, it hasn't shifted that hugely for us yet. I mean, our, our biggest thing was having – uh, major events that we were fired up for this year, like the Olympics, uh, we were going to be, you know, a very big player there uh, with, with several clients who are, are major Olympic sponsors. So really having to, uh, I guess, reschedule everything uh, you know, <laughs> that we had going for the Olympics there. Um, and, and then, uh, you know, trying to re- retract, you know, kind of re put everything on back on track for Tokyo and then Beijing shortly after that. Um, so that's been a lot of it. And then just a lot of our event type, uh, services. We, we, we have a lot of clients that, that do events, uh, you know, entertainment and sporting events. And so a lot of that was either postponed or altered or put on, on hold. And so we've had to really change those operations pretty dramatically, you know, either have things just canceled 
or, or just change the, the way that, that we're handling them and securing them uh, because they're different. We, we, we just don't have spectators at some events right now, like, like we used to. Um, so, so that has changed how we do the security. It, it changes the number of people we have to hire uh, for these venues and for these events. Um, so, you know, it really has required a lot of flexibility to be able to adapt, uh, you know, to the changing environment. But, but you know, that's something that, that we always, uh, you know, say that, that that's one of the biggest attributes that you can have as a good EP practitioner is the ability to adapt because the world's always going to change. And, you know, and, and if you look at, at the crises going back, you know, through, through my life, you know, I, I remember doing protection uh, when we were having issues in, at the uh, World Economic Forum in Davos, uh, you know, when, when the, the anarchists burned down the McDonald's and were protesting, you know, getting uppity, um, you know, dealing with uh, May Day demonstrations in the UK back in 99, 2000, uh, you know, dealing with things during, you know, various uh, Occupy movement type things, uh, dealing with SARS, uh, dealing with MERS, uh, you know, th there have been all these different crises, you know, hurricanes, earthquakes, Fukushima, uh, you know, over the years, there've just been all these crazy things coming down the pipe and, and you just need to be able to adapt to it and, and, you know, really adjust and then take care of your business and your people. Yeah, well said. Yeah. I'd, like the military, overcome and adapt and keep moving forward to move, communicate as they would always teach us in boot camp. <laughs> but it's uh, definitely changed the elements of everything. Um, I was going to ask you about what's going on. If you guys have guys on the ground in uh, Mexico, what's going on with the cartel? Do you guys have a pulse on any of that in Mexico? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, that's something that I've watched pretty closely uh, since about 2004. For 2005, and, and uh, you know, over the last 15 years, I've done kind of an annual cartel update, uh, where I kind of look at uh, the cartel dynamics and, and and what's what's shifting there and how it's changing. Um, it's kind of interesting because we had some people when when COVID started hitting that said, uh, you know, this is going to cause the cartels to implode. Uh, no. It is not. You talk about adaptive organizations. The cartels are among some of the most adaptive organizations in the world. Uh, they have had to adapt to a whole host of issues and, and interdiction. You know, they're always losing loads. They're losing leaders. They're, they're losing suppliers. Uh, so they've always had to kind of be very flexible on, on, on how they operate. And they're very, very adept at, at, at changing how they do things. And certainly that's what we've seen with these cartels, uh, you know, in the COVID environment. Uh, I mean, we're seeing huge seizures of fentanyl, of methamphetamine coming across the border, heroin coming across the border, cocaine coming across the border. So it, it has not slowed them down at all. People were saying, well, yeah, the border's locked down. They're not gonna be able to get dope across anymore. No, uh, that just isn't gonna happen. They're just gonna change how they get it across. And, and, and that's what we're seeing. Um, you know. Mexico remains uh, really locked in, in uh, just a, a whole array of, uh, you know, I, I think of it as counter, uh, really uh, criminal insurgencies um, because, I mean, they're not trying to take political power in Mexico, but they are trying to uh, exert control over areas for their illicit, you know, means. And so they're, they're using a variety of, you know, either military uh, and, and, you know, violence and, and weapons to achieve their goals, or they're using corruption. Um, you know, plata o plomo, this take my silver, take my lead. 
in, in order to, to achieve the goals that they need. You know, they, they bribe the people. Even in COVID, we've seen cartels giving out packages, care packages to the people in these villages where they want support uh, for COVID care packages. There again, it, it's the idea of building that, uh, that human terrain so that they can then exploit it. Um, and, you know, the, these, uh, the insurgencies continue, uh, you know, across Mexico. And there, there's, we really haven't seen, uh, you know, any change post-COVID. Basically, the, the, the big conflagrations we see going on uh, and, and the, the areas where we see the heavy body tolls, uh, whether it's places like Guanajuato, uh, whether it's Michoacan, those are areas that were hot before COVID and they remain hot. Um, because the same organizations are, are, are very involved and they're very powerful. They have a lot of resources. Um, so, you know, they are not running out of men. They are not running out of bullets and they're able to continue these wars. Now, you know, in Guanajuato, uh, you know, we did see Almaro rolled up, uh, one of the leaders of, of, a, of a local cartel there that was fighting against the CJNG for control of, of Guanajuato. Uh, but his troops and, and, and you know, his subordinates remain really locked in the battle against CJNG today. And that's one of the reasons that we see such a heavy death toll continuing in Guanajuato. Uh, you know, it's not settled. Basically, when we, when we see, uh, you know, death tolls go down, that, that's when you know that, you know, there's a big dog in charge. Oh, okay. uh, you, know, you know, it's kind of like that, that you know, the, the Pax Mafiosi, uh, the, the, the piece of the mafia. But, but you know, we're not seeing that at all right now. We're still seeing this conflict going on and really almost across every border plaza, uh, you know, uh, across Mexico, uh, you know, Tijuana continues to be violent. We're seeing violence in Sonora. We're seeing violence in Chihuahua, seeing violence in Tamaulipas. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's those wars that were going on beforehand that, that have just, you know, continued to simmer. Uh, and, and, you know, sadly, I, I just don't see any end to it. Uh, it's really unfortunate because, the repercussions are, are so grave, um, you know, not just for Americans wanting to do business there, but the people that live there, you know, and the businesses it's, it's, you know, you see these, uh, you know, well-established businesses in places like Salaya and in, in, in Guanajuato, they, they've actually had to close down and move out, you know, these, these influential families that have been in these places for, you know, decades uh, as, as, you know, uh, you know, running tractor dealerships or, or car dealerships or, or uh, uh, supermarkets. They've had to leave uh, just because of, of the, the pressure from these criminal groups for extortion. And then the violence when you don't pay up or you pay the wrong person. You know, it's, it's like a catch-22. Um, you know, okay, I'll pay you, but I got to pay the other guy. And then, you know, you can't pay everybody. And then if you pay the wrong person, they attack you anyway. So uh, it really puts businesses in a, in a terrible, terrible uh, situation. Um, and it's caused many of them to have to really close down or, or limit their operations in, in many parts of Mexico. Yeah, I've heard, um, I've had guys reach out to me, hey, I got a detail in Mexico, you want to go? I'm like, no way. Because <laughs> I don't understand the language. I don't speak the language. Mm. I'm Caucasian. And uh, unless you, you know, unless you're SF or something, got that training, surveillance, counter surveillance training, it's like you're, you're uh, I know a lot of guys in stateside, they get, you know, that money thing in their head thinking I can make all this money, but they got to do a risk reward and, you know, calculate your risk before going over there because you got to think about it. Mexico is probably dangerous than Iraq as far as a war torn country. And it's too dangerous. Well, there's also, you know, some, some very serious legal considerations there too, uh, because of the way that the Mexican laws are, are written it is very difficult uh, for an American to get a permit to carry. 
uh, and you don't want to be the guy down there without the gun. Um, and, and, you know, you're very there again, depending what's going on and, and who's controlling things uh, with the links these cartel groups have to the to the, the government. Uh, if you're an impediment to them, you might get arrested and then, you know, charged with illegally operating there, uh, you know, illegal weapons possession or something. They can they don't necessarily have to kill you to eliminate you. Uh, but you can get jammed up seriously down there, and, you know, and that's just not a good thing. So, you know, anybody who wants to operate down there really needs to be very, very careful to understand the laws and make sure they're working with a licensed organization that can get them licensed. Uh, otherwise, they're going to get, you know, they, they run a very real risk of getting jammed up, and you don't want that. So not only the risk of, uh, let's say you're not caring and you're working illegally down there, you're not working under a licensed company in Mexico, and say you have the federalities pull you over and say, hey, where's your paperwork? You don't even have to have a gun. If you don't have the right paperwork, they can haul you to prison too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's there again, the, the, you really need to be careful if you're going to go into those foreign environments and you need to know, you know what you're doing and then make sure you're doing it legally. Uh, right. I mean, you know, look at, look at this uh, protest last week uh, in, in Denver uh, where that, that security guard ended up shooting that guy, um, you know, who, who had assaulted him and hit him with bear spray. But still, he, he capped him, and, and he was not uh, certified. You know, he's not licensed in, in Colorado. Uh, so it looks like, you know, things are going to go bad for him, uh, but also his employers and, and perhaps even, uh, you know, the, the, the TV station that had contracted him. Uh, so, you know, you really have to be careful when you're going into these situations to make sure that you're doing it legally and correctly. Uh, I used to work when I was, when I was with uh, uh, Dell. Uh, I used to quite frequently do details in New York. And uh, I would work a lot of times with uh, the detail of another uh, very high profile billionaire who, who will remain nameless. Okay. Uh, but his guys used to always go into New York armed. Uh. And I said, dude, what are you doing? You're, you're not licensed. You're going to get yourself jacked up. And he says, well, uh, don't worry, Mr. X, you know, his employee, he, he said he'll take care of us. He loves <laughs> us. Yeah. Right. No, right. Sure. He, he uh -huh. will let you rot in jail. He'll hire somebody else. Um, and it was kind of my attitude. Uh, but, you know, you, you just need to be really careful and, and you know, make sure that you are, uh, you know, dotting all those I's and crossing the T's so you don't get jacked up. Um, and, and there's too many people that try to do things fly by night and, and then they get themselves really caught in, in a very bad place. And you don't want to be there, you know, if you're an EP practitioner. Yeah, too. If you get like, like, say you are that agent for example and let's say the guy with the bear spray had a gun he pulled it on you and said let's say he had a ccw legally in colorado and he pulled it and that's lethal death you know lethal weapon on lethal weapon and you shoot him and then guess what you're gonna get sued criminally you're gonna get sued civilly and not sued criminally but sued civilly and you got criminal charges you're facing and if you're you know like you said not working license then you have a whole set of problems and uh yeah, I see too many people taking shortcuts. I know a lot of people went up to Minneapolis, Minnesota to support all the rioting going on there. And I people on private groups on Facebook saying, hey, do you need licensed worker? Well, the governor said you need uh, you don't need a license right now because of state of emergency. And then people are, you know, there's no work going on right now. So naturally, all these veterans are desperate to make some money, easy mm -hmm. money. They just go under the radar, under the table. No one will know. Well, when you get in a shootout with your gun, they brought in from Chicago, Illinois, and you're working illegally, you're going to be facing a lot of issues. And I don't yeah. think a lot of people are thinking that right now because they're desperate to make some money because they're all sitting at home. Yeah, I, think I, 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 I definitely understand that. But at the same time, it's, I'm not going to jail for anybody. 
Um, and I, I might like you as, as protective, but I'm not going to jail for you. Um, right. I might like your company, but uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to do it legally. It's, it's just not worth it. It's not worth the blowback at all. Yeah, I think that's something we definitely need to cover going forward because hey, we need people need to be training more about laws and legalities. And I don't think that's done enough in a lot of these companies. We're not doing enough training that should be done because I know California's got BSIS. You have to have your guard card, you're exposed, and your CCW. I know many of the states out there that don't have it, but like you said, it's so crucial right now because we're in an election moment. We're in election year, so everything's so heightened, and everybody wants to throw somebody under the bus to get that extra edge for business, and it's just uh, – I'd rather keep my name clean. Yeah. No. And, and honestly, you know, being above approach is the way to go anyways. You know, um, you're, you're never going to go wrong by doing it the right way. Absolutely. And can you offer any advice to just the, the millennials getting in this business? And, you know, they're, they get starstruck watching too much bodyguard stuff in Hollywood. Mm. And, uh, they're, you know, they're looking for that opportunity. What advice can you give them that if they want to, you know, jump in the business? And what, what are your opinion and thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I mean, I, and I, I understand it. I, I think that a big part of it is to make sure that you really get good training um, so, so that you know what you're doing and, and not just training, uh, you know, in, uh, you know, firearms or, uh, you know, hand-to-hand combat type stuff. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of good stuff out there, um, but really you need to have the, the EP training that focuses on the other skills, really doing, you know, good advanced work. Um, and understanding what a good advance is, uh, you know, understanding the attack cycle and, and the elements of that attack cycle, and then being able to proactively interrupt it before something can be launched at, at your, your client. I mean, those are the sorts of things uh, that, that I believe, you know, many people, you know, bodyguards, as opposed to EP practitioners, if you will, uh, you know, goons with guns. Uh, and unfortunately, there are too many goons with guns out there that, that give our profession a bad name, uh, you know, and, and they're not looking at being proactive and avoiding the issue. I mean, that was my biggest goal when I was, you know, actively working EP was trying to avoid issue. And that and I worked some pretty nasty areas. Uh, you know, I used to take protectees in into Mexico, you know, when I was private. I, you know, I've been to India. I've been to all these other countries. Um, and, you know, as an agent at the State Department, I was all over the world, um, you know, from Albania to Yemen. I, w- I was in El Salvador. My first detail as a DSS agent was in El Salvador during the Civil War with the Secretary of State. Uh, I mean, that was intense. Uh, but the idea is, you know, not that you're, you know, uh, Mr. Badass Operator, but, but what you need to be able to do is avoid the issues. You need to keep your, your, your principles safe and you need to be proactive um, you know, and, and avoid those issues. So really during my entire career doing EP, I'm very proud that I never had to lay hands on anybody. I never had to shoot anybody. Uh, and that, that's because I was able to avoid issues. Now, now did we uh, arrest people? Yeah. Uh, but we proactively took things, you know, we, we, we took measures and took action before somebody could launch an attack. And, and so that's different. Uh, you know, and, and during my time as a, as a protective intelligence agent at the State Department, that's a lot of what we did was look for these problems as they were emerging, you know, from, from you know, the, the ether as they were starting to take shape and then taking action to interdict them before they could launch an attack against our people. And I'd really like to see more of, you know, that approach uh, in, in the private sector 
really more people becoming proactive, more people studying you know, human behavior, looking for anomalies, looking for surveillance, and then taking action to prevent things to stay you know, left of the boom rather than reacting. Because when you're reacting, you're losing. Um, yeah, I, you know, I might win that, that fist fight against Bubba, but the visibility there and, and the reputational risks to my client and myself uh, is just terrible. Uh, plus, like you said, you know, looking at the lawsuits and everything else. Um, so yeah, you know, can I kick his butt? Probably. Uh, is that the best thing to do? No, let's just not be there. Or, you know, if Bubba's an issue, Let's let's get Bubba taken care of before he gets close to the you know close to the protective. Let's avoid Bubba. Uh, let's let's get him rolled up or arrested before that. Um, so you know I, I would really like to see you know many more EP teams uh, work uh, with protective intelligence as you know really the, the, their guiding pr principle to help them understand the threats that are out there you know and, and then to be able to monitor threat actors. Uh, and see threats develop before they can manifest themselves. Yeah, great advice. Like training is so crucial and key. And I think the incident with Denver is definitely a telltale of telling many of the companies out there, hey, get your act together. If you want to be taken seriously and taken legitimately by a, a corporation, by that CSO to get a contract, show proof that you are training your agents. And let's see a diary of that training. And then uh, you might book some contracts, books and business. But right now, that, I think that's our weakest spot as an industry is lack of training. And yeah. uh, people are getting greedy. They're getting desperate because they want to make the money because 2020 has been one uh, rough year as far as EP and uh, executives traveling like they were. And so I, think, I see a lot of desperation by a lot of company owners trying just to land a contract. And so that's kind of the, the new norm I've been hearing about lately. No, I've, I've seen that too. Um, and even, even on some high profile, uh, you know, type contracts, people not doing it properly, um, you know, and violating labor laws in, in, in certain states, uh, you, you can't do that. Yeah. And if you have BSIS snooping on you in California, I think it's like a $10,000 fine on each penalty or something like that. They, they get aggressive. Mm -hmm. I know a couple of situations and stories I can't. Uh, name names because the NDAs I signed off, but I know uh, several companies that had to pay severely to agents for uh, being uh, messed over by labor laws. And uh, yeah, it's just work. It's, a, it's just, if you got to charge for the client that, charge the client for that. It's just a simple business. But then again, yeah. a lot of these guys running businesses don't have that business acumen to run a business to do that. So it's kind of, well, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. We recently put in on a, a bid on uh, a pretty high profile detail. And when we were talking it over, you know, uh, amongst ourselves and the companies, like, like, listen, we have to, we, we can't price this low just to, to win the contract. I mean, it'd be nice to have because it's high profile, but we have to do it properly. So we need to bid it at the price to do it right, or we just don't do it at all because the blowback potential is that big if you screw up and, and you take, you know, that, that whether it's the, the fines or lawsuit or just, I mean, just losing the credibility in the press of your firm of being busted for doing something improper is not good. And, and, and certainly we've seen some things in California uh, with CCW uh, licenses uh, with some firms doing things improperly. And that blowback is, is really terrible. So, you know, you don't want to be that person. So yeah, you really have to price it right to do it right and to do it properly and legally, or just don't go there. It's not worth your time. Absolutely. It's not worth the, 
a bad, bad branding on your name in the industry. I think like, uh, you know, Mike Trout was telling me as soon as this ends, it's going to be explosive growth. And as soon as they get a wrap on COVID-19, it's going to be, you're going to see more business you could ever dream of. Are you guys kind of starting to see a precursor to that yet with your organization? Uh, we're definitely seeing things pick up. I mean, over the last six to eight weeks, uh, it's been kind of like the floodgates opening up again, which is, has been a relief. Uh, you know, I, I felt like during the summer months there, you know, June, July, like we're stuck in molasses swamp. Um, yeah, but, right. but really with, uh, you know, with, with people starting to move again, people starting to operate again, um, it, it's been nice picking up and, and you know, getting uh, those requests uh, for our services. So it's, 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 it's been just, a, it's, you know, it's been a relief. That's awesome to hear. For the viewers and the uh, uh, listeners on the uh, podcast audio, this is uh, Scott Stewart, the Vice President of Torchstone Corporation in New York. Is that New York? Is that correct, Scott? I'm out of the New York office, yes. Okay. And this is Mark Ludlow. You know who I am on the host. And uh, <laughs> I'm a owner and founder of Security uh, Ludlow Security Group and the podcast. And I just want to, you know, share with our audience, you know, what's going on out there and Scott Stewart is considered an expert in terrorism. He's been on many TV shows and contributed, I think, CNBC and many others. And uh, he's considered an expert. And that's why he's on here, because I just want to share the wealth and knowledge that all the millennials are on podcasts. It seems like they're listening to podcasts and YouTube. They don't even like watching the TV anymore because all the politics. So we're tapping into that audience. And um, yeah, thanks for your time, Scott. And I appreciate what you do and keeping people safe. And uh, um, I don't really have too many more questions and if you have anything else you want to share with the audience, feel free to. Well, Mark, I, first of all, I just want to wish you luck. I, I think this, this is a great idea and, and uh, it's, it's neat that you're wanting to give back to the community and, and to really help educate people out there. Uh, and I just, I'm, I'm honored to have been asked to, to come here and help in that. And certainly I'm, I'm glad to have had the opportunity, you know, to help share some of that with, with the young guys. You can tell from my gray hair, I'm, I'm one, one of the, uh, <laughs> the old guys. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I just, I, I, I think it's, it's wonderful and, and it's necessary. Uh, so, you know, thank you for having me on. Thank you for the honor and, uh, just keep up the good work. Thank you, sir. Yeah. I appreciate the compliment. It's like a, a project that started as, uh, something I didn't think would devolve, evolve into what it is now. And it's, it's been humbling to give back to the veterans of the military community, which I love. I'm a veteran, you're a vet and, uh, you serve the country and, it's uh, something I take pride in. It's something that I just, it's an honor to give back. Yeah, it is.